0: Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with instant analysis of NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. That's right, the Silver King is back just minutes after NXT TakeOver went off the air Sunday night to break down every single thing that happened on NXT's latest big time show along with how I think storylines for NXT will progress as we move forward here into 2021. Folks, I have done a lot of instant analysis on this podcast and other podcasts of which I've been a part over the years. And I have to tell you, I cannot actually remember uh, instant analysis where I've been more excited to sit down and break out the entire thing. I'm sure there have been other pay-per-views I've liked Just as much, if not even more than this, NXT TakeOver New Orleans certainly comes to mind as one of those examples. There's been pay-per-views where I've wanted to jump on so badly to trash because X or Y or Z was so bad. But I am coming into NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day, this instant analysis podcast at least, so positive, so happy, just so enthusiastic about the type of wrestling that I saw this evening on WWE Network. So we're here to break down all of it. But before we do, you guys know we gotta take care of two pieces of quick business. The first stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. You heard them. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this show. Be sure to share this episode. Make sure people are listening. Tell your friends, your family, your doctor, whoever. Make sure if they like professional wrestling, they are listening to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only do we tweet about wrestling all week long, you get initial notifications when this show is live. You get to participate in our pre and post show polls. And we read your direct messages and tweets Due to it being late and due to the Silver King having a lot to say, I don't know how many DMs, if any, we're going to get to on today's show. But normally on regular episodes, we read your thoughts. A couple quick items to talk about before we get into it on top of the business we normally take care of. Number one, I got to give a big time shout out to Proper Cloth. Proper Cloth makes a ton of menswear that you can buy online, shirts, pants, etc. But they also happen to make some absolutely incredible face masks. And I've been using them throughout this entire quarantine. I've been meaning to give them a shout out for a while. Not only did I buy some myself, they also sent me a couple because they know I'm such a huge fan. So I don't have a promo code. I'm not trying to necessarily get you to go buy their stuff. But if you do happen to need face masks, head on over to propercloth.com, check them out. I'm a blue and gray guy. Basically everything I own clothes wise is shades of blue, shades of gray with some black and some white mixed in. So I have like three different masks that are blue and three different ones that are gray, all from proper cloth. It's like triple layered, all cotton, great stuff. Head on over there. And the fourth piece of business, you guys know how we do it on instant analysis. The Silver King cracks open a cold one. And I badly needed this tonight. I just pulled a full stone cold. It's all over the place. Uh, I'm drinking a very vanilla caramel cream ale from my good friends over at Dew South Brewing in Boynton Beach. Florida, my favorite brewery, my favorite beer, but this is a different style. I may have mentioned it on the show before, I don't remember. I bought so many cans of it that I had a lot left over. Wasn't going to go with a 32-ounce Crowler for today's show. Had too much to talk about to be able to fit two beers in while they were still cold. So we're going with the old standby, the Caramel Cream Ale, uh, as we break down NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. There we go. So let's get right into it, folks. You know how it works here. When we do an instant analysis, we go from the main event downward into the card. It's the opposite of our ultimate preview where we start with what we expect to be the lower card, work our way all the way up to the main event. And we start here by breaking down the pre-show poll, again, posted on our Twitter account, at GettingOverCast. Basically asked everyone, hey, what are your expectations going into NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day? The results came back 38% expecting an A show, 56% expecting a B show. That's combined 94% A and B with 4.4% saying C and 1.5%, basically one person saying D or F. So we know that's a troll, we flush that. I honestly don't know how you go into the show thinking it's gonna be a C considering the talent on the card, but maybe you didn't think the build was strong enough for this to reach an A or a B. I can understand that going in. If you think that coming out, man, oh man, are you incorrect. So that's it. Let's get into it. We're going to start with the main event, the NXT Championship. Finn Balor, the champion defending against Pete Dunne. There was a large focus on technical wrestling and submissions early with Dunne wrenching Balor's arm, his shoulder, his fingers all simultaneously. Balor worked Dunne's knee and Dunne sold it really well when hitting Balor with an incredible twisting front slam. It was almost like his Xplex, but... Without the release, I just never seen a move like that before. Dunn snapped Balor's fingers to break an STF, sold the knee extensively by failing on numerous offensive moves. Balor kicked out a 2.8 after a sit-down power bomb, and Dunn began stomping his fingers. Balor hit a backstabber, sling blade, and missile drop kick, but Dunn countered the coup de gras with a triangle. Balor reached the ropes, and just as he was knocked out cold, the referee didn't call a knockout. Instead he saw he had reached the rope. So he basically broke them up and Balor was able to recover and almost restart the match in some ways. Dunn escaped a grounded abdominal stretch by breaking Balor's fingers and eventually hit the bitter end, but Balor kicked out at 2.9. Dunn again stomped on Balor's fingers, but Balor countered a powerbomb into a DDT and a bitter end into an inverted DDT. Balor stomped Dunn's back and ripped out his mouthpiece, hitting a basement missile dropkick into his face, followed by a coup de gras and the 1916 for the clean win. This was a great way for Balor to continue his championship run. It was honestly a technical wrestling masterpiece, I basically wanna call it. I don't know what other word you would use to describe this match. That's how good it was. I can't recall a single flaw in the entire thing. It was very similar to Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit. I know people don't talk about him a lot or that match, but... It was so classic, so technical, so expertly done that that is what it reminds me of. What was even better than the wrestling was the selling. Balor and Dunn both gave 100% to sell the other person's moves. Balor even sold the match afterward by crumpling his fingers instead of doing the guns. He wasn't able to straighten out his fingers. It was just outstanding. And honestly, it was the perfect main event for a takeover of this caliber. As another person would say, this is such good shit. It really was such good shit. Top to bottom, a great show, and this was a picture-perfect main event for all the reasons I just said. Now, after the match, Oni Larkin and Danny Burch ran down to attack Balor. It took a little bit, but Undisputed Era eventually made the save. Kylo Riley offered his hand, which Balor eventually accepted. So they were all lining up in the ring, all four guys standing next to each other. And it looked like Balor was about to join Undisputed Era. But at the very last moment, right as Balor was going to stick out his hand, it looked like he was going to do the guns instead of doing the Undisputed Era. Adam Cole super kicks the champion's head off. And then when Kyle O'Reilly started arguing with him, Cole just turned around, super kicked his head off as well. Roderick Strong was there, stunned, unsure what side to take as the show went off the air. They teased it with the logo before, and then they delivered it with that, that shocking moment. And you knew this was coming. You knew that a split of Undisputed Era was going to happen sooner or later. It's been brewing for months. And NXT did a really good job faking us out with that expected turn during the first Balor-O'Reilly match, only for it to actually be Pat McAfee and his crew. Just really spectacular stuff here, top to bottom. This is what you want out of a pay-per-view. Top-tier wrestling, wrestlers getting over, and a go-home storyline that gets you talking until the next TV show. They even paid off the title of the pay-per-view, Vengeance Day, with Cole getting some vengeance on O'Reilly, and now O'Reilly and Balor, guess what? They want vengeance on Cole. It was an absolutely stellar pay-per-view, and this is just me talking about the main event. We have so much more to go over, but for the pay-per-view as a whole, I think you have an idea... Where are going with this? Christ, that was red. I am totally good. I'm up with the smoke, right? Fist me, boys. <laughs> that will never stop being funny. I swear to God. Uh, the women's championship. Io Shirai defending in a triple threat against Tony Storm and Mercedes Martinez. Martinez was dominant early, hitting Storm with an elevated swinging neckbreaker outside. There was a double submission spot before Shirai hit the 619, a springboard missile dropkick, and a double stomp from a tree of woe position, all on Martinez. Shry then climbed the light scaffolding right by the announce table. They seem to do this every two weeks or so. They probably need to figure out a different spot or use a different light scaffolding. But she climbed it anyway and did a double splash outside. It was still really cool. The announcer's table ends up collapsing on its own as Storm was like lightly brushing papers off of it. And it looked like Vic Joseph touched it, but very lightly. And the thing just fell apart. Now, it had gotten a lot of work early. No one got slammed on it, but a lot of people were running into it. So clearly something happened and a spot got blown and they basically had to just come up with what they were going to do on the spot here. Storm hit Martinez back in the ring with Storm Zero, but Martinez kicks out of it at like 2.8. I thought that was really strange booking because it's Storm's finisher and this wasn't a singles titled match. So if it was Storm Shirai and Shirai kicks out of it, okay, that makes sense. But to have the third competitor in this match, kick out of her finisher, when she's trying to get over as a potential main eventer and champion, I just didn't think that was a really good decision. So Martinez kicks out at 2.8, Storm gets frustrated, goes to the top rope, hits her with a flying headbutt, and then Shirai comes through out of the blind corner for the camera with a moonsault onto both women for the win. So there was really nothing wrong with this match per se, but it was a big step down from the first three on the show, the three that preceded it, which we're going to talk about in succession coming up here. Uh, the collapse table removed what probably was a big spot. It, the match was a good five minutes too short, and the finish was a bit delayed and clunky with the camera trying to get that out-of-nowhere finish, the referee not counting initially when Storm was covering Martinez for the pinfall. And then Shirai kind of missed her moonsault, and she does that sometimes. But all of those kind of factoring together made for a really strange, unfortunate finish. Uh, It was a strong match. All three women were shining. No one really got over except Shirai, I think, in the entire thing. I did forget to give a grade for the first match. The first match was an A+. Uh, This triple threat for the Women's Championship, it got a flat B. Now, that's not a bad grade. But when you stack it up with the other four matches on this card it definitely came through as the quote-unquote worst match on the show. Uh, Now, I did listen to Triple H's post-show press conference. They do a teleconference, basically, after every takeover. And he said the women had as long as they wanted, around 20 minutes plus, to do the match, but things didn't go exactly as planned. They chose the way to finish the match and how to basically get out of there. So it basically seems like, hey, yeah, this was supposed to go 18, 19, it didn't work out that way. And they cut it short to 12 minutes. A disappointment considering I had high expectations for it. But when you consider everything else on the card and how everything else banged in a major way, you can kind of get away with it. So the main event, a banger an A+. plus. The women's match, a B solid, 3.5 star match. You know, nothing bad about it. Um, if I'm giving a star rating for the main event, I didn't really think about it, honestly. But you're in that... to five-star range. Anything in there is acceptable. I think you probably have to be a minimum of 4.75 or a five-star match. That's how good it was between Finn Balor and Pete Dunne. And the other match that lives up to that exact same billing was the North American Championship match. Johnny Gargano against Kushida. Now, during Kushida's entrance, Beth Phoenix took an incredible low-blow shot at Nexus, which just needs to be pointed out. If you didn't hear it, go back and watch Kushida's entrance and you'll hear it. Gargano continued his comic book gear look at takeovers with a Wolverine ensemble, I guess this time. Austin Theory was nowhere to be found in storyline, the assumption being that Dexter Loomis kidnapped him before the match so he couldn't interfere. There was a ton of mat wrestling in this with some great submission counters throughout. Kushida cock Gargano on the middle rope for a double underhook, roll through suplex, with a bridge for a 2.9 count in a sixth spot. Then he countered one final beat with a clothesline and drove Gargano's left arm into the post. Gargano finally evened things up, countering off the ropes with a twisting suplex and a springboard Tornado DDT for a near fall. They traded submissions and pinning combinations before Kushida was basically lawn darted into the middle turnbuckle. Kushida hit a chicken wing suplex into the corner and then an avalanche Spanish fly that he, after he landed, he converted it immediately into an armbar. It was one of the best spots of the entire show. Gargano clenched his fist, but Kushida broke it, nearly forcing Gargano to tap on three different occasions until Gargano finally reached the ropes. I thought that was a great finish tease. I legitimately thought every single time Kushida reestablished the hold, that Gargano was going to tap and he was going to win. Kushida got a running start on the stage. The stage was elevated for this, going right up to the ring apron. He got a running start and booted Gargano's injured arm. Then he locked him in the hoverboard lock. Gargano broke it by forcing Kushida's neck under the top rope. He followed with one final beat onto the ramp and then another one inside the ring for the clean win and the title retention. This was a total, unadulterated banger of a match. It absolutely delivered Both guys completely showed out. Kushida tweeted after the match that this was the reason he went to NXT for matches like this, and it's the first time he really felt like himself in the United States. And that is great to hear because he has so much potential in NXT and WWE. But I do have to say, the result of the match, the booking decision, for me was really surprising. I thought this was a perfect spot to change the title and for Kushida to finally get his push. But there's just no discounting the top-tier wrestling and storytelling we got from the entire match. You just wonder why you'd have Gargano win squeaky clean as a heel over Kushida. And then you wonder what's next for Kushida if not the North American Championship. He's not going to elevate to the main NXT title. I can't imagine them kicking him down a rung to go to the Cruiserweight Championship maybe they're gonna call him up. Maybe he's gonna to go to Raw or SmackDown. They have a spot for him. Something's gonna happen. That could make sense if they—if that was the reason he didn't win. But other than that, this was the exact spot for Kushida to win. It was a great match. Gargano would have lost absolutely zero momentum from dropping the title. And the match was so well wrestled and Kushida did such a good job that he would have been elevated as North American champion. Instead, he just ultimately loses again. And you do kind of wonder what the booking is and why they made that decision. But as far as the match goes, this completely lived up to expectations. It exceeded expectations. It may not have been an all-time historic match, but it'll wind up being one of the best in 2021. Gargano and Kushida and Adam Cole and Pete Dunne will both be on the year-end list when we're voting for match of the year. This, I think, may have been my favorite in 2021 so far, at least, Non-Japanese match, meaning not New Japan Pro Wrestling. I graded it a absolute no-brainer A+. Minimum 4.75 stars. If you want to go to 5, 5.25, you most certainly can. This was the match of the night. I know people may argue with that and say Balor Dunn was, and I accept that. I'd probably have to watch both again to make sure I still feel the same way. Both were masterpieces. They were spaced out a little bit on the card, which was really smart booking. And scheduling by Triple H, but this thing totally delivered, as I said, totally exceeded expectations. Adam Cole Pete Dunn totally exceeded expectations, and the women's championship match unfortunately fell below the expectations. So, those are the three title matches. Now, we're going to get into the two Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic final matches, and we'll start with the men Grizzled Young Veterans against MSK. So, GYV cut their typical promo before the match. MSK went on a run early. Wesley nailed a springboard, double back handspring topecon hero. Nash Carter got nailed with a dropkick flatliner later. Lee then got the hot tag and went absolutely insane with a topecon hero over the ring post and then a double backflip heel kick on Zach Gibson. Carter lost his mind and brawled with Gibson before hitting a springboard cutter. At one point, and I'm gonna quote him here, He actually screamed in his face, fucking hit me, which I thought was hysterical. It came through on the broadcast. Maybe Paul Levesque wasn't that happy about it. I loved it as a fan. It felt raw. It felt real. Lee tried his backflips again, but got caught this time by Gibson, who hit the helter-skelter, followed by a 450 splash from James Drake, who is so big, he has no business doing a 450 splash, but it was gorgeous. And that was a 2.8 count. Lee escaped a doomsday device. MSK then hit their shove moonsault. And then they combined for a flying senton and a corkscrew senton for a 2.8 on Drake. Gibson put Lee on his shoulders outside the ring. As Drake flies through the ropes for a Tope Suicida doomsday device outside the ring in an insane spot. There were so many great matches. There were so many great spots on the entire show. This one popped me. And if you are listening to the show after clicking on it from Twitter, then you're probably noticing it's the gif I used uh, to promote this podcast. That is how much I loved that move. Carter got singled out inside the ring, but he survived an assisted backbreaker with a 2.9 count. MSK countered Ticket to Mayhem, knocked Gibson outside the ring, and then hit their springboard backflip blockbuster for the absolutely shocking, at least for me, one, two, three. But I gotta say, holy freaking cow. cow. This was an absolute banger. Morning Woods is what Xavier calls it. NXT is straight up strapping a rocket to MSK. And good for them because these guys have it all. They don't just have it all, Chris. They also have it. Yeah, MSK has it. And not just Wesley, who on his own is so incredibly impressive in a ricochet-like manner, where you just, you see him and you're like, how? How is he doing the things that he does? But Nash Carter, the personality, the expressions, the wrestling ability, I'm not discounting him either. All of it, they are a total package together. I love it. For MSK to beat the grizzled young veterans, who are understandably projected to win this thing, it's big time booking for them. This was a star-making moment and a legitimate push. And if it's, if I'm booking, if I'm in charge of NXT, I have them no doubt as the next NXT Tag Team Champions. I put them right over Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch, maybe this month, like, not this month, I'm sorry, inside of the next four weeks. March at some point, either do a special show or just book this as a mid-card main event or a main event MSK against Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch and you change the damn titles. Because you got it, strike while the iron's hot, That's what they're doing so far. I don't want these guys losing. They need the titles. And if you want them to drop it to Grizzled Young Veterans another month or two months from there, that's fine. But they are so hot right now. You gotta go all the way. This was a freaking banger. I did expect that it could possibly steal the show. But even when I was saying that, I don't know that I totally believed it. It did not steal the show just because the other wrestling was so damn good. But man, it was incredible. A flat A grade like a 4.5-star match. I mean, look, I'm not exaggerating. That's how good this show was. This was incredible. Now, on the post-show conference call with Triple H that I listened to, he called MSK sponges. He said they've totally taken advantage of their opportunities, and he almost made it seem like they weren't initially booked to win the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, but almost they were so good and exciting and did such a good job throughout the tournament That Triple H decided to put them over and get them to win. So maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. I don't know. That's what it sounded like, you know, hearing him kind of break them down. But he appears to be a huge fan of MSK. I can tell you something. The Silver King is a huge fan of MSK. And now let's talk about the match that opened the show, the Women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic: Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez against Ember Moon and Shotzi Blackheart. So early in the match, Moon was absolutely destroyed. It felt like the first like 10 minutes of the match where Moon was just getting her ass kicked. Uh, Gonzalez hit a ton of followaway slams, then she powerbombed Blackheart into the hockey glass at ringside. Moon eventually hit the Eclipse on Gonzalez, but Kai distracted the referee, so the referee missed the fall. Gonzalez was ready to hit her choke bomb finisher, uh, but Shotzi came in with a missile dropkick for a near fall, and later hit an avalanche sliced bread on Gonzalez, which was a really good spot. Blackheart put Kai on her shoulders outside, and Moon leapt off the second rope for a thunderous splash outside the ring. After a near submission of Gonzalez by Moon, Kai hit Moon with the chiropractor for a near fall. Gonzalez then tagged in to help Kai with an assisted GTK. She then power-lifted Moon out of the ring onto the elevated stage, and then shoulder-tackled her off of it. Blackheart went to splash the heels after knocking them onto the stage, but Gonzalez pushed her off the top rope, pressed Kai onto her over the top rope into the ring, and then hit the choke bomb with a double-assisted cover for the one, two, three. This was an absolutely incredible opener and definitely one of the best women's tag team matches I can remember. It may be the best. I'm guessing there was a better one in WWE, but this thing was a total banger. There were inventive moves, constant double teams. There was a lot of excitement and strong booking for the losers in Ember Moon and Shotzi Blackheart. Slight demerit here for a couple sloppy points and the illegal pinfall win. I don't really know why they did that. Uh, It's illegal, number one. Number two, the referee could totally see it. And Gonzalez hit her finisher. It's not like Shotzi Blackheart is some beast who needs two people to cover her. So it just was totally unnecessary and weird for them to do that. So there were some demerits. I did think the faces were going to win, but Kai and Gonzalez make a strong number one contenders. Kai has the long-term feud, With Shayna Baszler, they can go and come back to that, talk about it. And honestly, if you want a team to beat Baszler and Jax for the titles, well, Kai and Gonzalez are a good team to do that. It's heel versus heel, but I think it works. uh, And I think you got to change the titles. I want to see the WWE Tag Team Championships, Women's Tag Team Championships, I'm sorry, in NXT. And the women in this match proved that they deserve that opportunity. I graded this an A-. Uh, It was the show opener, so it gets a little bit of an upward curve there because you don't know what the rest of the show is going to be like grading against it. You could probably, if you win B+, I'd be okay with that. But for me, it was an A- match. It was just really strong, really exciting, exceeded expectations. And of the five matches on the card, it was ultimately the fourth best. But all four of those matches received A- or better. The only match that didn't was the Women's Championship match, which got a flat B. And that's still a very good grade for a pay-per-view match. So ultimately, the matches themselves and the end result with Adam Cole turning on Kylo O'Reilly, what does that mean going forward? That's what we can talk about a little bit here uh, before we wrap up with some other extraneous things that happened on TakeOver. I don't know really what NXT is going to do. Uh, It would make sense initially to do a tag team match. Adam Cole and Roderick Strong against Finn Balor and Kylo O'Reilly. But what does that do for you past that? Uh, it, what it, what I think's been established is that Adam Cole's probably going to be Finn Balor's next challenger. But I have a couple issues there. Number one, we've seen Adam Cole in far too many NXT Championship matches—not too many, like to this point—but so many for such a long time that him being the new number one contender, it's kind of like repetitive, right? We've seen it so many times. I'd like to see someone else get that opportunity. You have Kyle O'Reilly now who it feels like the end of the story will be him winning the NXT title. Well, is he going to win that off Adam Cole? Are they going to really put the title on Cole again? I don't think that's a good booking. You have Karrion Kross kind of waiting in the wings. He has the match this week with Santos Escobar. Yeah, you can have Kross come in, straight up beat Balor. And then what are you doing with O'Reilly? What are you doing with Adam Cole? So I love the booking to the end of the show. And I like that even though I loved Undisputed Era, uh, look, it, I think it seems pretty clear at this point, Bobby Fish is either going to retire or he's just not gonna be someone who can wrestle extensively and be part of a faction in a wrestling role, maybe a managerial role or something like that where he occasionally wrestles. Just, he, I don't think he's injury prone. I don't really like that term, but he just gets inj- injured so much where it's like, okay, maybe he's older. Maybe he's a little bit more brittle now. And maybe there's some other considerations that need to be thought about. So breaking up Undisputed Era, it was time for that. But it is a little depressing that they're going to be broken up and we're never going to end up getting Undisputed Era on Raw or SmackDown, which is what all of us have wanted for a really long time. I thought they would have fit in great on Raw if Retribution didn't exist. They probably would go to SmackDown right now and be fantastic. So yeah, I I don't know exactly where NXT is going to be going with this, but that's the fun. That's what you want. You want to come out of a pay-per-view excited and enthralled at the matches and the action you saw, and you want them to force you to watch their next show, be it on a Monday, a Wednesday, it's never really a Friday, so a Monday or a Wednesday, whether it's WWE or AEW or NXT, you want them to say to you as a viewer, I'm glad you love that, but we gave you a twist so good, you have to tune in Wednesday in this case to see what happens, and I have to tune in. I have to, I gotta see what's happening. If there was a, a sports event or a game at the same time, and maybe I would have DVR'd NXT, now I'm not going to, I'm watching NXT live. There's no way I'm missing it because I gotta know what's gonna happen with Undisputed Era, Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly, Finn Balor and Roderick Strong. So NXT succeeded in a major way with TakeOver. Now there are a couple other extraneous things to talk about. Eli Drake made his NXT debut on the pre-show wearing a blue leather jacket and blue tinted glasses. I got very Bluetista vibes from this entire thing. He tried to cut a strong promo as he's able to. He's very good and extremely talented on the mic. I just personally thought it was a total mess. It didn't really go anywhere. His new name is L.A. Knight, like L.A., like the initials of Los Angeles, Knight, like GHT, which has to be the strangest name change that I can remember. It sounds like he's trying to combine two NHL team names or like playoff LA gear shoes. Remember those from like the eighties and nineties? It's just totally absurd. It's a horrible name. I doubt they're gonna make a change now that he's debuted as it, but they really should. I gotta give it, you know, you know what's coming. 0.0. Point zero. I just don't know why you choose that name. Even if you're trying to be Hollywood, L.A. Knight? Like, who are the ad wizards that came up with that one? And zero! Just not for me. Bad name. Uh, during TakeOver, L.A. Knight was shown signing a contract with William Regal, so he's officially a member of NXT. Uh, Triple H on the post-show uh, call really put him over. He basically said that the time wasn't right when he was first with WWE. He's been keeping tabs on him. They said when the time was right, when he got to a certain level, that he would be on his way back. That happened, he's improved drastically on the mic and now he's back. So we'll see what Eli Drake does in NXT. I'm excited, people really like him, but the look was great. I I like the blue leather jacket, I liked the glasses. He had a lot of confidence and you could tell the intonation of the promo was strong, but the messaging of it, it didn't really hit home. The the name LA Knight just doesn't work for me. So it's kind of like a swing, And a miss, unfortunately, in his debut. But we'll see what he has to say Wednesday and how they build him, how they explain the name or the gimmick. We'll give him a chance. Uh, During TakeOver, there was also a Cameron Grimes vignette that was more like a music video, actually. It used music that was created for him by Josiah Williams, who is that Wrestle and Flow guy. If you're on Twitter uh, or YouTube or or Reddit, you've probably seen his stuff. He's incredibly talented. Uh, That should 100% be his new entrance, Cameron Grimes. I don't want to hear the old stuff. Um, I want to hear that rap that talks about him getting rich and buying stocks and basically his entire new gimmick. If they don't, it's a total waste. Um, It's money though, no pun intended. And then one other thing to note, Triple H did say on that call that I was listening to that he felt that this takeover was a throwback uh, to them finding once again what the brand is all about. And I got to give him a lot of credit because... Not only did I feel the same way, but for him to be able to kind of admit that NXT has lost itself a little bit is a good thing. NXT has received a lot of criticism, not so much since AEW started, but really over the last six months or so. I think people see that there's been more takeovers, more specials on TV, more title defenses, and they feel like NXT is rushing its storylines and the match quality maybe isn't as good. Maybe the storylines are working at a faster pace. There's actually no doubt about that. They are. But the wrestling has still been insanely high quality. The talent in the organization, uh, not just developmental itself, the PC, but in NXT itself, it's as good as it's ever been. I mean, look, yeah, okay, there's not Nakamura and Owens and Balor, although Balor's still there, of course, uh, But there's and Sami Zayn. All those guys aren't there simultaneously, but there's still some really ridiculously talented wrestlers in NXT and they have the best women's division ever. And I'm, I know the four horsewomen were all in NXT together and they're very special, but that was four women. You're talking top to bottom. The women's division has never been more talented in, on any brand, on any show in WWE history than it is in NXT right now. Simple facts right there. So I don't really feel like NXT's lost a step at all, but there was something about this show The energy is really what it was. It feels like that energy has been missing since around NXT Portland about a year ago, ever since crowds have been out of NXT. Now, I don't know what they did because it was still a limited crowd in the Capitol Wrestling Center. I don't know what they did to make this feel different, but it did. It felt like there was a real crowd. It felt like maybe it was just the quality and caliber of performances that got me enthralled watching it and so excited. But this is going to be, this is, not going to be, it is as of right now, I'm saying it right now, February 14th, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. This is the bar. This is the show of the year in 2021 and every pay-per-view for WWE, for NXT, for AEW, for New Japan Pro Wrestling is trying to live up to NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. It is definitely the best NXT event since Portland last year. Uh, It's probably the best event since either NXT TakeOver New York or NXT TakeOver New Orleans. New Orleans was such a ridiculous caliber of show that I'd really have to watch this again, which I will do, by the way, before I go to sleep tonight, and see how this measures up. But this ended up being an all-time NXT TakeOver and an all-time wrestling pay-per-view. Now, we did discuss the pre-show grade where we had, I'm scrolling up here, 38% of you Give this an A, 56% a B ahead of the show, 94% A and B again, 38 56. Post show grade flipped in a major way. 86.2% came in and said this was an A pay per view, 10.6% said it's a B. That is nearly 97% of respondents. 1.6% each said C and then D through F. So one person each. Uh, I could see maybe we can give someone the benefit of the doubt and saying this is a C if that's what they believe. Maybe they didn't love every part of it. Okay. Anyone voting DF, I mean, go to hell. Like, I don't, I don't even know what you like or what you watch. I mean, do you like the oddities? Like, did you like, did you like WWE in like 2012? Is, is that the type of wrestling? Like, do you like Impact? I, I don't know what wrestling you watch. If you thought that was a D or F pay-per-view. Uh, 86% A, B, once again, combined 97%. So that leads us to the Silver Kings grade. I'd love to give the show an A+. I I would love to. I can't do it. Why can't I do it? In order for a show to be an A+, you either need every match to be an A+, or you need them all to be A-pluses and A's. So the average is above an A. That's just how it works. This was not an A+, but man, it's an A. I mean, it's It's as high of an A as you can get. I think A-plus in school starts at, what, 98, I think? This is a 97 out of 100. Like, it's as close as you're gonna get. I loved the angle at the end. I loved the Gargano and Kushida match. I loved the Adam Cole and Pete Dunn match. And of course, the Men's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. All of those were A's and A-pluses. But the other two fell below. The Women's Dusty Rhodes was an A-minus and the women's triple threat was a B. So just by basis of average, I can't go A+. I saw a number of you said that you needed to go A+, and I respect that. I do have one DM, I'll read. He was tweeting me all night, Mike Callahan at Mostly Heroic. I don't know if he's a longtime listener, but I'm pretty sure he's a first-time DMer, so let's get him on the show. Here is my argument for this being an A+. This show is the bar for any pay-per-view during the time of COVID-19. I think that's fair. This is the best show of the pandemic, the last 12 months. The only thing that could have elevated it further was a live crowd losing their mind. That was the only thing it was missing. I agree with that. I also think if you did have Mauro Ranallo on the call, his head probably would have exploded. So either of those would have taken it up a notch, okay? Every single match, he says, could have main evented another show and it would have been a solid main event. Uh, yes and no. I don't think the women's triple threat or the women's Dusty Roads match would have main evented another pay-per-view, another takeover, and, you know, still been a A show. So let's not exaggerate there, but any of them could have main evented a TV show, for sure. Uh, The show crushed short, mid, and long-term booking, and it ended with a boom, which is a nice pun on a tweet that I sent as well. So that is true. It did end... With a boom, we did get very nice pieces of short, mid, and long-term booking, so you do make a really good point here. Um, it, it was a great show, and if you say it's an A+, I accept it. Again, for me, it's an A. Uh, I had one other person, Jet Liao, at the Jet Liao, L-I-A-O. He said, death taxes and NXT takeover turning wrestling into Shakespeare. Yeah, you're damn right. That is how good this was. Uh You guys were tweeting at me all night. I really appreciate it. It was cool to see you all reacting uh, with me while the show was live. You guys know I freaked out at the Doomsday device and a couple of the other things that happened were just absolutely incredible. I was legitimately speechless through the first three matches of the show. I didn't really know how to describe them because I've never seen a show really start like that. Start as strong as that did. And then to close with Balor and Dunn. And then the post-show angle. Man, NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day Absolutely delivered, and I hope the Silver King delivered for you with this instant analysis of the show. You guys know we do it like this all the time. In fact, we're going to be back next Sunday doing the exact same thing with instant analysis of WWE Elimination Chamber. But before we get to that, this upcoming Tuesday we will have our WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview. We're also going to break down everything that happened on SmackDown and Raw on that show. And then we will be back as usual on Thursday to break down the fallout from NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day and the latest episode of AEW Dynamite on our Wednesday Night Wars episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's getting late. The Silver King wants to get this damn thing published and in your ear holes as soon as possible. So I'm cutting it off. That's it. I'm going to enjoy the rest of my beer. I hope you all go back. Hell, watch it again. NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. Pay-per-view of 2021. The bar has been set. Follow that MFers. That used to be NXT's internal slogan. Follow that MFers. They just said it. 2021, follow this pay-per-view. Best of luck to you. Hope you all had a great Valentine's Day. I hope you all enjoyed this show. Again, we'll be back next week. Full coverage, WWE Elimination Chamber. With that, a couple reminders. Don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Please, it's very important. Let people know you love this show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. The Silver King's done. It's late. I got three words left for you. Bye for now.